And now, Father, once again we come unto this precious book, your holy word. All of it is truth. We praise you that the word of the Lord breaks the cedars. We praise you that the word of the Lord brought all that is into existence. We praise you that the word of the Lord, it is the word of God that causes the deer to calf and the the childless to give birth, to sick, the sick to become well, the dead to rise to life, the sinner to turn in repentance and faith to you. It is the word of God that produces all of these things. And so now, Father, as we open this precious book, which is your written word, we pray, Father, that we would listen as eager recipients of the greatest blessing we could ever have, the light and the truth of the God who created us. We praise you for it, Father, and ask you to do your work in us this morning. Have sway over our hearts. Help us to be docile to it. Lord, I pray that we would not look unto our brothers and our sisters wishing that they would get what is being heard this morning, but that we ourselves would examine our own hearts to see if we are living in such a way that is consistent with our rich and glorious calling. So, Father, we give you this time now, not as if it were not already yours, but simply as an offering to you of worship and praise. Have your way with us now, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in chapter 1 of Ephesians. On June 20th of this year, I began preaching the first message in this series on Ephesians, saying that as a pastor, I can't help but look around at the prevailing culture with all of the shadowness, shallowness and triviality and weakness, and ask myself, why isn't there more spiritual depth and strength at a time when there is more resources and more opportunity than ever before, perhaps, in church history? At other times, I look around at what seems to be a ubiquitous moral insensitivity and often outright moral failure and find myself asking, why do so many Christians live such defeated lives? Why so much unnecessary disunity in the church? Why so many broken relationships among people who claim to be indwelt by the Spirit but can't seem to get along with one another? Why so much immorality in the ministry? Why so much disharmony in the home? Conflict in the workplace and irreconcilable differences in marriage. I mean, hasn't God called us to rise above all that? Has he not given us his word and his spirit to make all of that possible? Why so much defeat? And more importantly, how can we turn the tide and begin living victoriously for the glory of God, the good of the church, and our own joy? That's how we began this series. And the answer to all of those questions I suggested from the beginning is found right here in the first chapter of Ephesians. And today, as we complete this first chapter, I want to end where I began. I want to finish this chapter emphasizing Paul's main point, his main theme here, that everything you need to live a victorious life victorious, faithful, and joyful life before the Lord has been abundantly provided for you through the infinite blessing that God has lavishly poured out on us in Christ. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where? In Christ Jesus. Come on, you memorized that. Say it with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing. And through the rest of the chapter, he talks about what those spiritual blessings are. What are they? Well, first, that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What a promise. What a treasure. Secondly, that in love he predestined us to adoption as sons, according to the kind intention of his will. Third, that he has redeemed us by the blood of Christ according to the riches of his grace. Fourth, that he has made known to us the mystery of his will in all wisdom and insight. Fifth, that he has granted us a heavenly inheritance beyond our wildest imagination. And finally, that he has given us a taste of that inheritance by the sealing of his Holy Spirit. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Those are just the major categories. And we will spend eternity unpacking each one of those boxes and finding all the treasure that's there. Paul would have us know these deep truths because, as we saw last week, he wants us to live, to be undergirded by three great things. Number one, hope. Number two, riches. And number three, power. All three. Hope that comes from the unshakable confidence in his calling and choosing us. Riches that are laid up for us in heaven to keep us motivated and joyful while we live and struggle here on earth. And power to meet, listen, To meet every challenge he has ordained for us to face. Every challenge. Today, we finish this chapter. And we finish it where we began. I ask, why is there so much defeat in the church? The only answer can be that we're not tapping into the provision that has been granted us in Christ. We're just not doing it. We do not need to understand psychology. We don't need to delve deeply into history. We don't need anthropology, except to the extent that it comes from his word. We need the precious promises of God's word. We do not understand what God has given us, and therefore we do not appreciate the power that God has granted to us in Christ to meet every challenge that we face from day to day. And what's the nature of that power? What is the nature of this power? Well, Paul tells us, beginning with verse 19, he's not willing to let go of this. He's told us about our hope, briefly. He's told us about the riches, briefly. But he's not willing to be brief about the power, because we've got to have a handle on this. And so he takes off in verse 19 and 20. 
Let's start with 18, just for context. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Notice Paul is praying that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened, verse 18, to the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He's saying, open your eyes. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will come and open your eyes so that you won't just see the words, but that you'll see the depth of the riches of the meaning that are behind these words. God has empowered you. In Christ. To face every challenge. Will you open your eyes? As David said, prayed, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. And Paul is saying, pray that for yourself. I'm praying it for you. Do not miss this. And notice it's not just a little power. It is the surpassing greatness of his power. The word for surpassing here is hooperbalo in the Greek, which literally means to throw beyond or to run past. When you read in Romans chapter 1 that we miss the mark, the definition of sin is to miss the mark, right? And we kind of get the impression that we're kind of shooting for something and it's just not quite getting there. This is the opposite of that. This is God shooting, giving us power, and he's throwing so much of it at us that it's more than we can catch. It just goes over our head. It just fills our cup to overflowing. It's hooperbalo. It's surpassing greatness. It's the idea of going way beyond what is required or what is expected. You see, the power God has put at our disposal in Christ doesn't just barely meet the need. It goes way beyond anything we could ask for or imagine. In fact, Paul tells us what kind of power he's talking about here. It is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, verse 20, and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. So I ask you, How much power do you need to live as a godly wife with a loser of a husband? More power than it took Jesus to be raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God? I doubt it. But that's the power that's at your disposal. I ask you, how much power do you need to live as a godly student on a godless and often hostile campus? More power than it took to raise Jesus from the dead and seat him at the right hand of God? Not likely. But that's the power that's at your disposal. I ask you, how much power do you need to go to your wife or to your teenage son or daughter and admit that you were wrong? More power than it took to raise Jesus from the dead and seat him at the right hand of God? Not a chance. But that's how much power is at your disposal. The point is, you have more than enough power at your disposal to conquer any challenge the Lord allows you to encounter. 
How often do we find ourselves facing what in the light of eternity is a little tiny problem and complain that we just don't have what it takes to handle it? I can't do that. I can't do it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. We bemoan the fact that we just can't get our little light to shine while we're standing in front of the nuclear power plant of God's grace. I just don't have the power. Yes, you do. You don't need to pray for more power. You just need to tap into it. We all have the power we need. We're just not plugging in. And now notice Paul's shift in emphasis here. He begins talking about the greatness. He starts by talking about the greatness of the power. And then he kind of seamlessly slips into talking about the glory of the person. Notice with me verses 20 through 23. Which he brought about in Christ, whom he raised from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He just kind of gets carried away about Jesus. He's making his boast in the Lord. It's like every time he mentioned Jesus' name, he kind of gets sidetracked. You just want to, you know, reel Paul back in. Stick with the point. And he would respond, Jesus is the point. When I was down in Haiti, uh, preaching down there at the pastor's conference, every time I mentioned the name Jesus, the place erupted. And they would... They would just, they'd wake up. They knew that it was like a cue for them that when Jesus' name is, is pronounced from the pulpit, you wake up and you say, Amen. And they did. Because they knew that his name, and they know that his name is everything. That his person is their life. The glory of the person. We've got to understand this. The glory of Jesus and the power of Jesus go hand in hand in the mind of Paul in trying to describe to us what kind of power is at our disposal. He wants us to realize that it's not just some kind of impersonal force. It's not some kind of Star Wars mythology, but rather a glorious person who possesses all authority over heaven and earth. It's not just power, it's authority. And that's what Jesus told the disciples, right? Just before he left, Matthew 28. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And I am with you wherever you go. You see, when Jesus... Jesus was placing before the disciples what appeared to be an impossible task, was he not? I mean, come on, make disciples of all nations? <laughs> Is that realistic? Make disciples of all nations, the 12 of us? I mean, how many nations are there? How long is this going to take? Uh, 2,000 years, give or take, but let's get started. Jesus was placing before them an impossible challenge. You got a challenge bigger than that? I doubt it. But he didn't just give them the command. He also promised the power that they needed to do the job. 
namely, himself. All authority is given to me. Where? In heaven and on earth. That's pretty much everywhere. And I'm with you. So go. Because wherever you go, guess what goes with you? All authority. All power. You have everything you need. Just go. Just obey. Make disciples of all nations. How do you expect us to do that? Answer, all authority in heaven and on earth are mine. And I am with you. Now what does it mean that he is all authority in heaven and on earth? Well, Paul says back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, that God made Jesus sit where? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Now that's an interesting line. Rule, authority, power, and dominion. Now when you were memorizing your scripture this week, did any of those terms catch your attention? And did you think, I wonder what he means. I wonder what he means. Well, let's learn something from the Word of God. These terms typically refer to angelic or demonic beings. Did you realize that? For example, here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that God is bringing the mystery of the gospel to light, quote, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities, where on earth? No, in heavenly places. There is something about the gospel being revealed that is designed to communicate something to the angelic and the demonic host. Namely, that Jesus reigns supreme. Rulers and authority here are angelic beings who reside in heavenly or in spiritual places. Ephesians 6, chapter 12, this is the whole spiritual warfare passage. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against who? Rulers and against powers and against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Okay, so now we have a category of spiritual being. These are not the holy angels. Clearly he's not referring to the power of men on earth but rather to powerful demons in the spirit world. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against our enemy and all his minions. And you remember our scripture of the week. You just quoted it so beautifully. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor what? Angels or principalities. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. What do we know about angels and principalities from this verse? They are the ones trying to separate us from the love of God. So whatever they are, whoever they are, they stand between us and God trying to make the division broader. When indeed we are united in Christ if we know him. These are the fallen angels, angels who have rebelled against God and who are bent on our destruction. 
1 Peter 3.22 says that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Once again, authorities and powers are fallen angels, angels who, along with the holy angels, have once again been put in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 22 here in our text says that God put all things in subjection to Christ. All of these angelic, demonic beings. I mean, think of the most powerful personage that you can comprehend, and it's bigger than that, more powerful than that. And yet, it has been put in subjection. In subjection to Christ. The Greek word subjection is hupotasso, which is a term that is, has to do with rank. Or position. After Jesus' resurrection, the Father restored to Jesus the rank that he had before he came to earth as a baby. When he came as a baby, he had no stately form, Isaiah said, that we would be drawn to him. He was a child. Nobody even recognized who he was except for the shepherds who had revelation and the wise men who had extra biblical revelation and biblical revelation. But aside from that, no one even knew he was there. When he came to earth the first time, he had no rank. He had no authority. He was despised and rejected of men, Isaiah said. But after the resurrection, God restored his his position so that he now sits in a seat of rank and position that is infinitely higher than the rank and position of anyone you can imagine on earth or in heaven. We think about putting a new president in place in November. And I sure hope you're planning on voting, because that's important. But you know what? We don't get to vote on who is going to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is already King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is already over every authority and power and dominion that can be conceived. All things are in subjection under his feet. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We will all own up to the fact that is true today, that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of the Father. His rank is not only higher than all rule and authority in this age, but also in the age to come. That means even in the eternal state, no one will be higher in rank than Jesus. No one more powerful. Therefore, no one can trump his will or say, as Nebuchadnezzar said, who can question him or say to him, what have you done? Answer, nobody. No one. He is king of kings. And Lord of Lords, and everyone else outside of the Godhead is subject to him. Now, the really wonderful thing about all this is, as it pertains to you and me, is that God has taken this person that I just described to you from the word of God and has put him in authority over heaven and earth and has given him to who? As head of his church. Now, that's an amazing statement. The term head here means chief or authority. 
as you would suspect. This Jesus, who has been raised to a position that is infinitely higher than any other authority in heaven and on earth, has been given by God to the church as its head, which means that we're not guided and directed by some subordinate leader who rules with limited authority and limited power. No, our leader, the leader of the church, is one whose power and authority are without bounds, without measure, without limit. And he is gracious to you. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) That God would put not some angelic being over us, contrary to what the Mormons would have us believe or the Jehovah's Witnesses. He has not put before us as our leader some subordinate member of the angelic hierarchy. He has put his very son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God, the second person of the Trinity, is our head. And head doesn't just mean authority. It means essentially connected to we who are the body. He is not just disconnected, putting, us, putting him on a throne to rule over us, but rather united us with him in an ear, indissolvable, irreproachable union. That's what in Christ means. We spent a whole message on that. We are in an indissoluble union with Jesus. He's not just here and we're here. He's not just the dictator and we are his subjects. No. He's the head and we're the body. You see, how connected are we with Christ? How connected is your head to your body? That's how connected you are to Christ. That's personal. That's personal. The one who fills all things delights to serve us and give us everything we need to meet the challenges that he has ordained for us to face. In fact, in God's mind, there is a sense wherein it is not only true that Christ fills up Everything there is, he is that glorious, that awesome, that big. But it is also true, in some sense, that we, the church, fill him as well. You say, what does that mean? Verse 22, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church. What a gift. What a gift. He could have given us anyone to lead us. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him, the church, who is the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Pastor Dan, what does that mean? I don't know. I just don't know what that means. I know it means that we are connected to him intimately and personally. And wherever he is, we are. Whatever privileges he has, we have. Whatever status he has, we have. You say, where is the Lord Jesus? He's everywhere. As far as God is concerned, where are we? Wherever he is. How is it that he can say that we are sitting, we have already been glorified sitting at the right hand of God? How can he say that? Answer, 
Wherever he is, we are. That's an issue of security, folks. As far as God is concerned, as far as the way God thinks about you, he never thinks of Jesus without thinking of you. He never thinks of you without thinking of Jesus. That's how intimately connected we are to him. What a privileged people we are. Amen. What a privileged people we are. Now, before we close, I want to do one more thing here because we're done with the exposition of this chapter. It's quarter to 12. I know you're shocked. But wait, there's more. Before we finish thinking about all the glorious riches that are ours in Christ, I want to take a, a moment for some practical observations. I was sitting in bed the other night reading. I keep books on the bookstand next to my bed, and, and whenever I get a chance at night, I try to read. I picked up A.W. Tozer's book, the Incredible, That Incredible Christian. It's amazing how the Sovereign Lord ordains for his servants to read things at just the right time. A.W. Tozer points out that there are three kinds of spiritual treasure God blesses us with. The first is a kind of treasure that comes to us immediately upon our believing unto salvation. You see, because God has chosen and adopted us by grace, we have salvation. That's a treasure. We have forgiveness. Oh, what a treasure that is. We have redemption, justification, regeneration. We have union with Christ. We have all of these things. They come to us simply as a gift of grace on the basis of faith. In Christ, we possess all these things long before we're ever aware of it. Long before we're ever aware of it. We have to be taught these things from the Word. We have to read them for ourselves in the Word. And before that, we don't know. But they are true. And we are unspeakably rich, though we know it not. A second kind of spiritual treasure consists in the inheritance that we will begin to enjoy on the very moment that we cross death's river onto heaven's shore. These include the resurrection of our bodies, the realization of perfect holiness, and the removal of this body of death, as Paul called it. It involves our entrance into the eternal kingdom of God, where the Lord Jesus himself will be our light, where the streets will be made of gold, where loved ones in the Lord will be reunited. What a blessed day that will be. Where we will rule and reign with Christ, where we will judge the angels. And all the amazing things the Word of God has promised about our eternal lives in heaven will be us will be for us then to enjoy. But these blessings are reserved for us in the storehouse of heaven. It doesn't do any good for us to pray for them now, because they are reserved for us in heaven for you, Paul says, kept in heaven for you. And yet they are ours. God has set them aside for us to enjoy when we reach our eternal home. That's a second category of God's rich blessings. But there is a third category, a third box for us to open. The first two boxes are for us to kind of open and look into as through a glass darkly. We can't really touch them. We really can't handle them. But they are there for us almost in snapshot form just to give us 
a taste of what lies ahead and what has been given to us mysteriously as a gift of his grace. But there's a third box, so to speak. There's a third category of treasure that belongs to us because of the work of God in Christ on our behalf. But these do not come to us unless we make a determined effort to possess them. They include things like deliverance from sinful habits of the flesh, victory over our own human stubborn will, awareness of the presence and power of God in our lives, growth and grace, growing in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as the lost, an abiding spirit of worship, prayer, joyful service, and power to accomplish all God's holy will for our lives. All of these are ours for the taking They have been purchased and provided by the sacrifice of Christ, but they do not come automatically. We must fight for them. There are four very practical things we need to know about this last category of spiritual blessing with which God has blessed us in Christ. If you're taking notes, you'll want to remember this. I confess they are not mine, but they will bless you and convict you and perhaps cut you to the quick. Number one, first thing you need to know about this category of God's richest blessing to us, you will get nothing of it unless you go after it. You will get nothing of it unless you go after it. Think of Joshua of the Old Testament who could not enter the promised land but by fierce warfare, even though it was the inheritance promised by God. This is the promised land. Go and take it. Do I have to fight? Yeah. But all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Just go take it. Go stand in front of that city. Wander around it for seven times. And on the seventh day, give a shout. I'll take care of the rest. Just obey me. But you've got to move. You've got to move. You've got to go after it. And I will give it you. What about Caleb? The Lord had promised him a certain portion through Moses. He said, Moses, there's one area of the promised land that I want. And Moses said, you are one of only two men who are faithful. It's yours. After the promised land was defeated, there was one area left. It was Caleb's. Caleb was 80 years old. And he goes to Joshua, his buddy who stood with him, with the unfaithful other spies who died in the wilderness for their unfaithfulness. And he said, Joshua, you know God promised it to me. I want that mountain. And God gave him the strength, and he fought, and he conquered it, and it was his. Did God promise him the mountain? Yes. Did he have to fight for it? You bet he did, but it was his. The point is, If you want the kind of blessing that God has promised for you in this life, you can't sit around hoping that it will simply descend out of heaven upon you one day when you're not expecting it. You've got to fight for it. You say, oh, I wish I could be faithful in having my quiet time. That's not going to descend upon you. You have to listen to your alarm, roll out of bed, go crawl into your place of prayer or exercise before prayer if you need that. I do. And do it. And it will be yours. 
One of the favorite verses of the Puritans was Matthew 11:12, which says, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. And their interpretation was, that's the only way it comes. You've got to be serious. You've got to be disciplined. So the first thing we need to understand about this third category of spiritual treasure is that you will get nothing of it unless you go after it. Number two, you may have as much as you insist on having. You may have as much as you insist on having. Again, when Joshua went into the promised land, God told him, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that I have given to you. Now, what if he never moved? What if he never took a step? Likewise, Caleb, when it came time for him to take possession of his part of the promised land, He didn't only hope for it. He didn't wish that Joshua would just come and give him the deed to it. He said, you want it? You've got to take it. And you can have as much of it as you can take. How much do I get? How much do you want? Jesus said, John fourteen thirteen, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, what do you want? James chapter 4, verse 2 says, You have not because you what? You ask not. You don't ask. You're not very interested in getting it. You can have all that you want. Everything that is in the will of God is yours. All of the promises of God are yes and amen. How is it? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You can have as much as you want. Tozer writes, when our requests are such as honor God, we may ask as largely as we will. The more daring the request, the more glory accrues to God when the answer comes. So ask. Be bold. Go for it. You can have all that you want. Do you need the power and wisdom to conquer a stubborn habit? You can have all the power that you want. Do you need certain resources from God to make a change in the direction of your life for his glory? Do you feel like you lack what you need to forgive an enemy or to exhort someone you love? You will get nothing unless you go after it. But you may have all that you insist upon. The third thing we need to realize, number three, And here's where we start stepping on toes. You will have as little as you are satisfied with. You will have as little as you are satisfied with. You'll never become more godly than you want to be. You'll never know more of God and his word than you want to know. You'll never be more of a man or a woman of prayer than you want to become. 
You'll never enjoy the fellowship of the Spirit than what you want to enjoy. You'll never know God more than you want to know Him. If you are satisfied living a defeated life, then that's what you will always have. God will never force you to take the victory. He will never force you to experience His blessing. If you are content to keep God at arm's length, you will never know the wonder and the glory of walking with Him as friend with friend. If you are willing to settle for a joyless, barren life, you should not expect that God will make you enjoy a walk with the Spirit or make you taste and see that the Lord is good. You can have as much as you want, but you will never have more than you want. It's a grievous thing to see how many Christians seem to have stricken a deal with their soul that they will allow themselves not too much of God. They'll never permit themselves to get, quote, fanatical about their love for the Lord Jesus and their walk in the Spirit. They're perfectly content to live a lukewarm, mediocre kind of Christianity, utterly unworthy of their calling and utterly inconsistent with their riches in Christ. But that's where they are comfortable. And God will not make them take more than they want. You will get nothing unless you go after it. You may have all that you insist upon, you will have as little as you are satisfied with, and forth. You now have as much as you really want. Again, Tozer is helpful here. He writes, every man is as close to God as he wants to be. He is as holy and full of the Spirit as he wills to be. Our Lord said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled if there were but one man anywhere on earth who hungered and was not filled, the word of Christ would fall to the ground. You see, beloved, the issue isn't that God has not provided all that we need or could possibly desire. That's not the issue. The issue isn't that God is holding out on you. You see, where's God? If you don't know, you've just missed the point. You get into a difficult situation and say, God, where are you? You've missed it. Everything you need, you already have. Everything you need, you already have. If you are in Christ. And so it isn't an issue that God has not provided all that we needed or could possibly desire. The reason we don't no more fullness of the Spirit, more victory over sin, more knowledge of God, more love for the brethren, is that we really don't want any more than we have. Because if we really wanted it, all we would have to do is take it. And so on Saturday morning, men, or on Wednesday night, when you come to men's ministry, and you're asked, has your time in the Word been this week? Your answer will be entirely dependent on what you wanted during the week. You get what you want. You get what you go for. God will give it to you freely. 
richly. He is prepared to open the windows of heaven and pour himself out on you. But you will only have what you build for. You will only have what you want. God will never make you take more than you already have. And whatever it is you have is what you really want. And so in closing, I ask, where are you in terms of your relationship to the riches of God in Christ? You need God's riches in your marriage? You already have it. You need God's riches, some power, some hope, some treasure, some resource to enable you to do his will. It's already yours. It's already yours in Christ. We do not have because we do not ask. And we do not ask because we want other things more than we want. That's what it comes down to. Will we be a holy church? You want to be? Will you be a godly dad? Do you want to be? You want to be a faithful, godly, Christ-exalting husband? Do you want to be? Do you want to be somebody who grows to do something great for God, young person? Is that what you want? God has provided all the resources to make that happen. But he will not force it upon you. You must take it. You must take it. The kingdom of God is under siege by violent men, and those men take it by force. Take it. It's yours. You say, what, what will it cost me? It'll cost you your pride. It'll cost you a little sleep. It'll cost you money. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you a lot of emotional, spiritual energy. But you will be the richest person in the world if you make the investment. Don't waste your life. Enjoy it to the full. And all the riches that God has provided for you in Christ. Victory in life will be yours as you tap into the awesome power of God at the throne of Christ. And Father, these truths are ours.